Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're going to speak with Griffin Bridgers. He's a partner in the law firm of Hutchins & Associates in Denver, Colorado. Griffin wears two hats. He's an estate planning attorney, and he's a content creator. On that front, Griffin is piloting a fledgling media venture centered around bespoke tax and estate planning education in the digital age. In this episode, we're going to take a quick tour of the changing estate planning landscape. We're going to talk about why he has started his media company. We're going to go into the trends in the business models of the wealth management industry, and we're going to dive into a couple of new developments in outside ownership of law firms and accounting firms that bear monitoring. This is an interesting one. Welcome aboard, Griffin. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Fraser. Well, we are in the midst of chaos and disorder in the estate planning world with the legislative flux, you know, everything from the House Ways and Means Commission report, which throws a whole bunch of our gizmos in doubt to tax rates, et cetera. What are you seeing in your practice and how are you helping clients think about the potential shifting sands here? It's kind of funny. I'm heading downtown to my office in a few minutes just because I went through my personal moment of panic a couple weeks ago when I saw how far reaching the proposals, if enacted in their proposed form, could affect our practice. Then once I dug into it a bit more, I realized, okay, you know, we still have some time here. You know, there's there's still some action that can be taken and it's not going to be just unique to us. So I got over the initial sky is falling feeling, but then another partner in our office ran into that same issue. We made the mistake of listening to a Limeberg webinar on Friday and then came in saying, Griffin, we've got to really wrap our heads around this stuff and see how it's going to affect our clients. I'm like, don't worry. I'm a couple weeks ahead of you. I've already plotted this out. So I feel like my panic is probably similar to what a lot of estate planning practitioners are going through right now, having to balance that ever-present need of making sure everybody is served versus overreaction. And there's a few things going on in the background. One is so many people were burned by the planning push of 2012 when everybody went into slats, cuberts, everything like that. And we've had to deal with so many clients coming back in the last few years just saying, I didn't really need this. How can I get out of it? So we've already kind of been through one wave of panic. And for a lot of firms like ours, where we have a lot of legacy clients, I think doing something has been more of a hard sell just because they've been through that cycle before of saying, hey, you know, the law was going to change and then it didn't. And we did all this planning for not. So part of what we've had to look at is how do you approach this in a way of saying there's utility to what you're doing beyond just mere tax planning and overreaction to what might happen in the tax world. And we're also kind of tempered by the last year where we've worried about so many things happening, the reduction of the exclusion amount, the possible retroactive application of any form of tax law change. And I guess there are some silver linings in the House Ways and Means proposal and that retroactivity piece is off the table. But we do have somewhat of a moving target in that there's this loose concept of date of enactment as to the effective date for some of these laws. And then there's also the end of year, December 31, January 1 type of effective date as well for some others. So it's hard to balance, okay, 
when might that date of enactment be coming down the pike? And I'll confess, I'm the type of person where I am not very knowledgeable on legislative process and everything like that. I just kind of track it in the headlines and see what's going on. So all I've been able to do is just sit back and say, okay, all I can do is educate myself on this and you know, kind of look at how can this affect different types of people with different types of trusts. And that's the approach I've tried to take. So there's knowledge and then there's organization. And I think the next part is just going to be the organization phase of me and I'm sure several practitioners looking at, okay, how do we roll this information out in a broad enough way that we can reach the clients who are affected and make sure they at least know and do something about it if indeed some of these proposals are enacted, which depending on who you talk to, may have an extremely low amount of likelihood, or if you're a very, I guess, anxious type of person, likelihood or risk isn't really a, a word that comes into your lexicon. And I think uh, on the attorney side, yeah, we tend to be very risk averse and we want to plan for everything. Yeah. And one of the things we talked about the 2012 phenomenon where there was a lot of thunder and lightning and ultimately nothing that came of it. And as you said, sort of balancing the conjecture out there with the what I call the non-zero chance that nothing happens or that things are completely different than what's been broadcast. And so it's always difficult to try to balance those things and be sort of an initiative taker, but at the same time, don't jam people into structures that you can't build in some flexibility to fix if they don't turn out right. The other issue that I worry about is less the estate planning attorneys, because most of the really quality ones that I know can turn around and be educated on the climate that's presented in front of them. But it's the ancillary vendors and services around them that are crushed. And you know that could be trust companies or valuation experts or banks, things that you need to do to dot the I's and cross the T's to make the planning effective and durable if it comes under scrutiny later on. So anyway, I, I agree with you. It's one of those things where there's so much conjecture out there. Some of the things positioned are real sweeping in terms of the effectiveness of tools that we've had at our disposal. But I, as I caution to listeners and to anybody who listens to me on the topic and said, you know, make sure you've got the other parts of the stew in the pot because that could be what trips you up later on. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people tend to look at it laser focused of, oh, yeah, we just need to get this trust in place and get this this asset transferred over. And like you said, there are so many people who need to be lined up, trustees, valuation experts, so on and so forth. I've had people approach me on on some out there things like deferred sales trust and other things. And I've had to say, look, even if I could turn this around in two weeks for your closing or whatever the case might be, because people always wait till the last minute to do it. I'd say, you know, you've got to line up a trustee. You've got to get the valuation rolling. There's And the investment advisor has to be on board. Your CPA has to be ready. There's so many people who, you know, like you said, <laughs> have to add to the stew in the pot. And, you know, I really feel for some of the appraisers out there for our clients who've had to say, look at real estate or, or business holdings, I've had to tell them, look, you're probably not going to be able to line up an appraisal anytime soon. At best, what we can do is hope to make the gift now, look at a wandry type of clause and maybe extend your return if the appraisal isn't in by April 15th of next year. And even then, yeah, that could be a tall order depending on the extension and you know how busy they are going into 2022 as well. So one of the things that is, I think, really cool about what you're doing, and I discovered you based on the strength of your YouTube series where you communicate 
via sort of video and sort of semi-podcast form, a lot of different estate planning concepts that I think is really helpful. And it's one of those things that I'm trying to do the same thing in a little bit different form as well. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing on that front and what your general vision is. And we'll get into a little bit about some of the inside baseball of the wealth management industry, of which we both have I'm sure very strong opinions, <laughs> but take us through a little bit about what you're trying to achieve with this series. And for listeners, I'm going to have links to it. We'll talk about the links at the end of the podcast and I'll have it in the show notes. But what are you trying to achieve with the series and how's it going? Okay. Well, there's a few layers of this and what I'm trying to achieve kind of shifts on a daily basis. So really at the end of the day, what I love is just speaking and teaching. I've been doing it for years. You know, it was part of my practice when I first started out. I'm sure a lot of estate planners and wealth advisors can identify is you're taught from the outset. If you want to build a practice, you have to go network with people in other aligned professions and seek referrals. And that's what I was told to do, but I was never that natural salesperson. Really where I stand out is that I have a hard time going up one-on-one -on -one with somebody and like closing a deal, but I have no fear of like speaking in front of a group, being in front of an audience. And that's been one of my greatest assets. And I've long struggled with how do I integrate that as a central part to my practice. So really the video series is born of that natural, I guess, I wouldn't call it talent. It's just more lack of fear that I have to put myself out there in that regard. And with that, one of the opportunities I had early in my career was just to go teach for the College for Financial Planning. And I teach a lot of their estate planning courses for CFP candidates. And I've been doing that for over 10 years. So I just got in my reps doing that. And the material that the CFP board requires you to learn as a wealth advisor is just so broad. You know, as I went through it, you know, I realized this is more complex and more in-depth than a lot of estate planning attorneys are ever going to know or learn. And I also ran into, in my industry, a lot of estate planners who viewed it as a great field to be in with better work-life balance, but they were leaving a lot of business on the table just because they look at the advanced tax planning piece and say, oh, I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole because I don't know anything about that. And that kind of shocked me because when I started in my career, it was almost universal that you were a jack-of-all-trades. If you were an estate planner, you did everything. And I saw a lot of estate planners, you know, siloing themselves and leaving these advanced opportunities on the table. And sure, there's tons of CLEs and everything out there, but we live in the digital age. We live in the Google age where people want to find an answer quickly and then be able to deliver that to their client. But if you're the one providing the info, you have to also be thorough. So in terms of digital products out there, I, I viewed a world where blogs were the big thing for years and everybody who had a website was told, oh, you have to have a blog, especially if you're in professional services. But half of those things are never going to be read. <laughs> if you're lucky, you might get half of them read and you might have a few, a few viral posts who really kind of catch traction. So at the time, I was riding the light rail to work a lot pre-COVID and watching YouTube, and it kind of dawned on me, what if I just throw some videos up here? What if I just talk about what I'm doing, some of the advanced knowledge that I have and what I'm encountering on a daily basis with the hope of 
sharing my knowledge with professionals out there. And that's just what I started doing. And I'll confess that at the beginning, you know, right before COVID, I didn't gain much traction because I'm a perfectionist. Originally, what I'd envisioned is that I was going to take these extremely complex subjects and explain them in five minutes. So I started with the SECURE Act in five minutes. And Fraser, I can't tell you how long I spent spinning my wheels on this outline trying to condense down the SECURE Act to five minutes. I re-recorded it probably a hundred times and I could never reach five minutes. I always got down to write at about six minutes or so. And it dawned on me that the perfectionism was because I was trying to guarantee an amount of time. I was trying to say, okay, five minutes. And eventually when I got to six minutes, I thought, hey, that's what I bill in increments of. So why not just peg this as like, okay, replace a tenth of an hour of learning with a tenth of an hour of billing. So that's what I did. Initially, I started a video series called The Tenth of an Hour. And, you know, I, I put that out, you know, probably July of 2020 is when I started those. And I just went at a frantic pace of one per business day because to get over my perfectionism, I had to reason that nobody is going to listen to or care about the first 250 of these. So don't worry about quality. Speed of execution is paramount. Just get something out there so you stop sitting around twiddling your thumbs every day thinking about what you hope to do one day and then you're not actually doing. So I just kind of kept that up and kept it up and kept it up and kept it up. And it it hasn't gained a ton of traction, but it gained traction much more quickly than I thought. And along the way, ran into a lot of people like you who would come to me and say, man, I've really enjoyed your video series. I get a lot of value out of it and you do a really good job. And every time I, I hear that, I have to chuckle because you know I, I think to myself, this is hastily done in about an hour or two every morning and thrown up on the internet. So you know, it really got me thinking about, okay, if I'm just getting in my reps, surely quality is going to follow. And that's really the initial thought I had when I started this. So it's funny you say that because I went through a a similar cycle, maybe a little bit different because I really focused on interviewing other people. But the first half of my podcast, you're now my 92nd, I went to a studio. I was really focused on audio quality and perfection, and it just wasn't getting done fast enough. I could barely do one a month because I had to coordinate not only my schedule and the guest schedule, but also the studio time schedule. And that by itself was crazy. And then the editing wouldn't get done fast enough. And so it was really driving me crazy. And I made the leap and found a great guy by the name of Matt Pazzi, who kind of helped me sort of create a workflow where I could comfortably do two a month, which to me was about the right cadence for these types of things in terms of getting the interviewees, interviewing them and getting it up to speed and all that. And I think it's a big part of finding the cadence and getting that. The thing that I really I like about your series is the fact that you found a nice niche, I think, in between Estate Planning 101, which you can find on the web in blog form pretty much anywhere, and then hyper-technical ActTech. And for those listeners, ActTech is one of the big sort of groups that I guess they consider themselves to be the Navy SEALs of trust and estates planning, but they get very detailed and in the weeds on certain topics. And your series provides not only a good background and overall concepts in what you're doing there, but also a good level of detail that doesn't quite get too wonky and I think is approachable for a broader set of people than maybe the act tech world is. Did you sort of think about that ahead of time or is that sort of a happy accident through iterations and doing 250 of them? 
I'd like to say I was intentional about it. And, you know, I kind of like that observation you made just because subconsciously, those are both things I recognized. I didn't want to be in a state planning 101 because to your point, everybody is doing that. Now, one day I might do that. And I kind of dove into that a little bit just because a lot of the estate planning 101 out there is a very salesy. It's driven at the end of the day to say, hey, come to me to do a revocable living trust or whatever. And uh, yeah, I, I'm not going to compete in that space because like I said, sales isn't my strong suit. Now, there is that rarefied air of not even just ACTEC, but those you know 10 or 20 talking head thought leaders in the estate planning and, and wealth management industries who are out there putting out content like this every day that have 10,000 plus followers. And to your point, yes, they are hyper-technical. They've spent decades developing, you know, their tomes on different tax subjects. And I realized, one, I'm never going to out-research them and I'm never going to outwrite them either because there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to tax law. Everything's out there. So really my skill set is taking what I think estate planners should already know and condensing it down to a quick audio video format that somebody could pick up on in a short amount of time. So yeah, it was kind of in the background that was looming in my head, but I'd never really thought about it from the perspective of, I don't want to get hyper-technical. If anything, what I did is I approached it with that consciousness that as an attorney, yes, it is an area where you're prone to over-explain when it comes to tax because you want a CYA. You want to make sure you're complete in what you're teaching people. But at the same time, if I were to do that on every video, it would be an hour plus in length. And I'm even prone to that where I now bill myself as doing 10 minutes with Griffin and I easily get over that 10 minutes on a lot of videos. But I have a one take rule. And if I go over, then I'm, I'm not going to sacrifice the quality of what I got down in the name of keeping to a brand. A good friend of mine, Michael Pollocker, does the 15-minute advisor, which is more financial advisor related. And I think the discipline of of the time constraint is useful, not only to you have people's attention span. If you start going over that, you start to <laughs> potentially having problems. But that discipline helps to make the, your condensation of very complex subjects that much more compelling, I think. So I like that a lot. So we were talking before and sort of preparing for this a little bit about our thinking on some of the wealth management industry foibles that we have to help clients navigate and that participating in the financial services industrial complex, you know, really involves having a shepherd to make sure that you get the services you want and you get the value out for the fees that you pay. What are your quick thoughts from a service model perspective what do you like to see, you know, from my perspective, just to give a little background, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of fiduciary with a capital F. I like to see things as conflict free as practicable. And I like to see a lot of transparency so that the client understands what they're paying and why. I'm sure you're thinking the same thing, but maybe go into that a little bit more about what you're seeing on that front. And then we'll talk a little bit about where we think the industry's going and what clients might want to think about as the tide starts to come in. Absolutely. And I think in terms of what I want to see, that ties into some of the motivation I talked about behind the videos is that everything in the professional service area, especially with wealth management, is so sales driven at the end of the day. So I like that you brought up transparency, but I also think it's important to look at it from the perspective of collaboration and, and what does the client really need? And 
I think that was one of the struggles I had, especially during COVID, is kind of having to take a step back from my practice and look at it holistically and say, am I really serving clients at the end of the day or am I pushing them into the same cookie cutter estate plans and everything like that. And that was more in reaction to what I'm seeing in the industry, which kind of shoehorns into this is that there's this growing client appetite for having all services under one roof. They want a one-stop shop. They don't want to have to go through the ringer with their financial advisor and think they're done. And then at the back end, be like, oh, by the way, to really be complete, you have to have a will done. Here's a list of three attorneys to go call. And in today's age, nobody's going to call. They want to be able to get this done. They don't want to have to call up attorneys, interview them, wonder if they're getting charged for the interview, and then maybe go through the ringer a second time with an estate plan on the back end that has a very unpredictable cost. Now, the problem, I think, in the grand scheme of things is that going back to your original question, what do you really want to see? I mentioned transparency, but it's more speaking truth into situations. And a lot of what I'm going to bring up today for those in the crowd who are in the estate planning industry, it's going to be one of those things that your knee-jerk reaction could be anger that I'm shining light on this. But I want to remind everybody, I'm just the messenger in that regard. I'm not the one out there driving this. And really what I want to do is help you have a better practice and not bury your head in the sand. But there is a sea change where estate planning is shifting to the wealth management side, mainly because I feel like attorneys have done a poor job of allowing their practices to mold to that client appetite of transparency, having a one-stop shop for services, and having everything under the one roof with advisors who are truly collaborating instead of giving potentially conflicting advice. So we can talk about the models in a second, but I think if anybody has one key takeaway from this, especially for estate planners, I think what it should be is that, you know, we talked about thoroughness on the videos and the technical analysis. One of the conundrums that really hits me is how a lot of attorneys out there, and, and you kind of have to do this because, you know, you have to cover yourself and make sure you do a good job for your clients, but a lot of attorneys will spend a lot of time with an estate planning client looking at the absolute worst case scenario. And we've been talking about risk all throughout this conversation, especially with legislative action. But you have a client you're trying to talk into looking at the worst case scenario and draft an estate plan around that. Yet so many attorneys won't take that same approach with their own practices. They want to bury their head in the sand and say, oh, I can keep doing business the exact same way I have been for a long time. And in a lot of cases, you'll be fine doing that. But for me, I'm more future minded. And the reason I've really kind of taken this on is an affinity of mine is because I want to make sure I plan strategically to have the right practice three, five, 10 years down the road from now. And the videos kind of shoehorn into that. But they're more a reaction to the fact that, yes, depending on, on what type of advisor you go to, they tend to have estate planning talent in-house who can give recommendations to clients, who can do some of that initial legwork that goes into any estate plan of organizing what the client has, coming up with an action strategy, and even just basic education on what steps can be taken by the client to implement an estate plan. And we can get more into the models on that in a minute, but that's kind of the, the overall view is that, you know, in an approach for collaboration, 
the wealth management industry has said, okay, attorneys, if you're not going to do it, we're going to do it ourselves and start trying to figure out this angle to delivering estate planning services. So we won't go into the models in each different iterative depth, but I think the big controversy for a lot of people is, you know, I'm paying an AUM fee oftentimes. Now, sometimes there are flat fees for distinct parts of advice, except maybe financial plans, et cetera, or maybe a flat fee for a periodic checkup on one thing or the other. But in general, the AUM fee is what predominates in the wealth management space. And in my experience, as asset management fees have come down and there's more scrutiny as to you know what that nets out to for unit of effort for dollar paid, people are starting to look at it a little bit more. The industry sort of protests back and says nothing's really changing. People are seeing the value. Behind the curtains, I think that the value has moved away from the asset management. It's firmly in the financial planning side where people, I think, do get value. And it's moving slowly, but maybe slowly right up until the point when it goes very quickly into the behavioral coaching and behavioral finance part where the financial advisor turns into a coach or maybe sort of a disciplinarian to sort of check poor behavior and maybe encourage good behavior around savings, et cetera. And then sort of wedded on top of all of this is the multi-generational aspect of estate planning where the financial advisor has to educate, broaden the minds and shift perspectives to get clients to think beyond their retirements to what happens when they're gone. And that's a challenging thing. And I'm not sure the AUM fee sort of makes sense on that front. If people see value, they'll pay what they want. But I think there's a weird struggle as the industry and the value proposition of the advice that financial advisors are giving is looking down at what's happening in the wealth world and providing that advice and articulating how that works with the dollars actually paid. Is that something you're seeing? And how does that sort of translate into your world as you and I am trying to figure out how to fit into that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, behavioral psychology goes a lot into wealth management in and of itself, just in terms of buying and holding and staying in a portfolio. But it also, it hits when it comes to the payment for the advice and the value that's added. And I think the big difference I see between the AUM fee and the attorney's fee is that the attorney's fee is usually paid out of pocket. The client has to go through the pain of actually seeing the bill, writing the check, if they still write checks or you know, paying on a credit card and collecting miles or points or whatever the case might be. But that conscious awareness that you're paying fees out of pocket, out of your own checking account, hits a lot closer to home than what is usually a much more significant fee paid more than one time, but annually. But the difference is it comes straight out of your retirement account or your investment account or whatever that's being managed So I feel like that's a whole other field that warrants its own recognition and discussion that nobody has really dove into yet is just behavioral psychology when it comes to the payment of fees. But that aside, that's kind of outside of the scope of today's discussion. I think on the AUM side, I don't want to call it a smokescreen, but there's been much more focus on the internal fees for various mutual funds and other sorts of index types of investments than there has been on the value proposition of the actual AUM fee itself, just because another thing, people don't want to really necessarily bring conscious awareness to the fact that, let's say, you have 
three million under management at one percent per year, you've got thirty thousand per year out the door. Where's the value added in that? And it's money that you never personally see in your checking account, so you don't necessarily identify with that. Now, what I have seen a lot on the wealth management side, especially for those who don't have enough wealth to generate a significant AUM fee, is that shift to the flat fee planning type of model. And I'm, by no means am I an expert on that. There's plenty of guys out there, you know, talking about this and shedding light on it, especially like Alan Moore with the XY Planning Network and Michael Kitsis. And, you know, there's a lot of room for growth and creativity there that they've recognized in that space. And I guess the ultimate value proposition is being challenged because like estate planners who are accused of being commoditized, the basic portfolio model of how do you create a diversified portfolio in and of itself has been commoditized. And you have robo-advisors out there, too, who step up and challenge that basic model as well. And it's even gone to the point where I've seen advisors even farm out the investment work to a robo-advisor and say, okay, we're going to focus more on the behavioral piece to this of how do we add value in terms of budgeting, buying and holding, doing the estate planning, and and having the discipline to build wealth over time. So those are really kind of the key elements I see on the wealth management side that are coming into play with fee pressure. So we're going to wind down in a little bit here, but there are a couple of trends that you and I were discussing that I think in the sort of wealth space, not on the asset management side necessarily, but in the sort of practitioner side that I think merit attention. And you brought up one on the law firm side, and then I mentioned one on the accounting side. And I said, geez, you know, this is something that merits a look. And I say this against the context where a lot of wealth management firms, RIAs in particular, or practices that are in larger sort of bulge bracket type firms are getting aggregated and that there are people with succession plan issues that are moving their wealth management firms and turning into these much larger firms. And the part that was interesting to me is, and that's for better or worse, and we'll find out what that looks like in five years when all of these firms digest them and whether service increases or decreases accordingly. But the idea that that aggregation phenomenon might start to happen in the law firm and accounting firm space, I think is particularly interesting because those two spaces typically are partnership-based, usually the predilection is that lawyers and accountants, they don't want to take on outside money. It's going to be complicated. Long-term PE investment timetables, or excuse me, short-term PE investment timetables might not really work with those two types of professional practitioners. On the law firm side, you mentioned that Arizona and Utah and Florida are areas that where non-practitioner ownership is starting to be allowed. What are you seeing on that front? And is that something you're worried about? It's not necessarily something I'm worried about, and I'll say why in a minute, but I think, you know, that kind of shows a general trend where, you know, it's being pitched as access to justice, which I absolutely agree with, where they want to allow the opportunity for non-attorneys to have ownership of law firms. And if you're an attorney, one of the things you you know from your ethics class in law school and is pretty much the one universal rule you have to follow is that you have to maintain your independent judgment. 
And an offshoot of that is that you cannot share fees with a non-attorney or accept referral fees from non-attorney or give referral fees, vice versa. It's been a longstanding economic proposition in, in law firms that it's pretty much always going to be attorney owned and attorney managed and controlled. Now, Arizona and Utah have come out with varying flavors of this, and Florida hasn't quite implemented it yet. But really, the main, I wouldn't call it objective, but main outcome is a softening of ABA Model Rule 5.4 in that it allows non-attorneys to share in legal fees and in that regard have equity ownership in a law firm or in any sort of entity that's practicing law as one of its functions. Now, how that shoehorns into our conversation today is that it really kind of, it ties into what is already going on, especially in the independent RIA space, is that a lot of RIAs have started to bring attorneys in-house into kind of a drafting role so that they can accomplish that same objective we talked about at the beginning of serving the client appetite for having all services under one roof. Now, typically that model in and of itself requires the attorney to be completely independent, maybe have an office share, but the attorney owns the law firm and the independent RIA typically does not. There's a couple exceptions out there where you have RIAs who are owned by a JD who's a practicing attorney or maybe not a practicing attorney. The biggest one, biggest example is Peter Malouk of, of Creative Planning. They kind of, I wouldn't say they pioneered it. I don't know what went on before it because this is an old idea the more I talk to people. But yeah, they, they really deployed on a massive scale the marriage of an independent RIA with an independent law firm. And that independence could I guess, merge economically if states start to pick up on this trend of softening ABA model rule 5.4. Now, in terms of law firms themselves, I don't necessarily see it as a long-term threat. I don't think it's one of those where PE money is really going to come into play, except in some very high dollar areas, because one of the problems and one of the biggest differences, I think, economically between a law firm and a firm that collects fees on assets under management is that there's no recurring revenue stream with an estate planning firm. It's really difficult to build enterprise value. More often, what you're doing is building the, the value of the branding of the individual attorneys themselves within the firm. So, I don't see it as being a, a huge investment opportunity for a PE firm looking from the outside and saying, okay, well, you did some planning work for this person. How often are they going to come back to you and do additional planning? And a lot of that shoehorns into the, the legislative proposals we've talked about and how erratic tax laws might be in the future, which I think in the long term, there's going to be a growing need for federal tax revenue and even state tax revenue. But that aside, you know, for the time being, there's just not a huge threat in that regard. The threat, I think, more is in who you're going to be competing with. If you're an estate planner, you're now looking at, okay, I've gotten referrals from this advisor in the past, but all of a sudden they brought an attorney in-house. Is that going to dry up my stream of referrals? And the answer is probably yes, unless you can really distinguish yourself in doing that more advanced planning that I'm trying to educate on through my videos every day. So 
I think ultimately there's some flaws to it where there's still a need for outside referrals for some of those more advanced types of planning scenarios. And based on the fact that advisors tend to have national practices, whereas attorneys are licensed in specific states, so that one attorney who's in-house at an RIA may not be able to draft documents if they're in Colorado and say they have a California client. Well, guess what? You're still going to have to go get independent counsel then. So I think ultimately that in-house role was going to evolve more into what you'd see with a traditional in-house role was that you're more a vendor management type of person who's engaging outside attorneys to do documents at a lower fee or, or a negotiated fee. Got it. And distinguished from the Eisner Amper example, and they just took on private equity money, I guess you'd say that the accounting firms have a steadier stream. The clients need tax returns done every year. They need something that is a recurring revenue stream that a firm could identify and say, oh, okay, this is something we can count on. The estate planning firms less so. Maybe some law firms do have that where there is that more recurring nature to what's going on. And maybe if a, an estate planning practice is folded into a larger situation, that's where something could be a little bit different. Against that backdrop, the one thing I sort of worry about if that type of thing proliferates is, you know, as you get private equity money in. Private equity likes to cut costs. They want to see margins. They want to see a return. They want to pay down the debt that's funding all of this. That argues for sort of reduction in customization slash personalization. They probably want older, expensive partners to get out quicker. And that that might be a little bit of a different experience than people who had used the firm before had had. And then maybe, I guess, also the concept of who actually owns the clients gets a little bit more of the spotlight. If that structure isn't interesting to some of the people who are at the accounting firm or law firm and they decide to leave, are those warfares going to be a little bit more pronounced than they may have been in the past? Exactly. And I think that's one of the unique areas of law or, or the unique protections at the end of the day is unlike accounting and financial management and things like that, or wealth management, Client's choice controls when it comes to who owns the relationship. So anytime an attorney leaves or there's a change in the composition of the firm, the the client has the choice to stay or go or, or even you know retain a new attorney of their choosing. So you don't see non-competes, you don't see those types of things really come into play as much with law firms. So I think ultimately, in that regard, the client's needs are served. Now, in terms of how you track that internally and the economics of that, that's a whole other question between PE firm and partners and and who owns the relationship. And yeah, I agree with you. I can see a lot of stepping on of toes there. And even when it comes to who delivers the ultimate advice, because I think the biggest risk I see in that independent RIA model where the attorney is brought in-house is is there a risk of stepping on each other's toes? Is somebody else in-house going to give advice that's counter to what your advice might be? And are they going to be a non-attorney who's the face of the relationship delivering that advice? And I think that's the biggest risk I see with this PE type of model is that, yes, they're going to want to bring in their their vetted management who might quote unquote own the relationship from an optics perspective and they could get themselves into trouble pretty quickly. And the, you know, there's obviously protections with unauthorized practice of law still, but at the same time, that economic blowback is going to filter down then to the attorneys who were really ultimately responsible for the legal advice that was then changed ultimately before delivery to the client. 
Let's wind down on that. This is something that I think is going to be really interesting. And I think as we're in the on deck circle of what could be kind of a big trend here. So we'll check back with you on that front as we start hearing more of these transactions happen. Griffin, how do we stay in touch with you and how do we keep track of what you're doing on the media and digital front and then on the day job law firm front? Absolutely. Well, my law firm is Hutchins and Associates. We're in Denver, Colorado. You can just find my website at hutchinslaw.com. For the media stuff and everything outside of that, you can follow me on YouTube. Just type in Griffin Bridgers and you'll find my channel on YouTube. I'm also kind of piloting a, a newsletter to dive into some of those blog and multimedia aspects. And that's a good way to keep in touch with me as well. That's just griffinbridgers.substack.com. And with all that, you know, kind of what I'm doing ultimately is using media as a way to kind of develop a brand in the face of all these market approaches as well. So kind of the fledgling idea I have, if you can call it that, is I'm delivering advice on a mass scale through YouTube. And what I'm looking to do ultimately is say, hey, this can be in the digital remote age tailored to an individual client or group of clients. So I think the next iteration of what you and I talked about is if you're, say, an independent RIA who's not ready to take that step of having an attorney in-house but wants to better streamline that value proposition that you have for your clients in-house, that you can have a media product delivered by an estate planning attorney, maybe reviewing an estate plan or just kind of giving a general update on what's going on in the in the wide, wide world of tax law or, or whatever the case might be. So that's my ultimate goal with this is to hit that point. So you can keep in touch with me there and just kind of follow me on LinkedIn. My profile will be linked in the show notes and yeah, happy to be a sounding board for anybody who wants to explore those types of ideas or anything we've talked about today in terms of general law firm strategy. Really cool. Griffin, thank you for being on. Whatever this turns into, I want to be a part of because I think uh, <laughs> I think you're on to something that's pretty special. So thanks again for being on. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Fraser. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.